we are not looking at jail jumpers, interesting though they are to some people like me. Uh, we are looking at the topic of mission because one of the uh, values of New Frontiers, two of them are about mission. And last week, Quincy looked at mission local, reaching people in the area that we live and are based. And today, I'm really going to look at global mission, thinking about reaching people further afield. In fact, right around the world, down through the generations, the generations that have been and the generations to come. That's what we're looking at this morning, kind of global mission. And it's obviously far too big a uh, topic to look at in one talk. So I've just picked out three points that I felt God put on my heart. The first one is this, that God is on a mission to seek and save the lost. It came a bit through our worship, I felt. God is on a mission to seek and save the lost. Number two, we the church are the agent of God's mission. We are the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears. And thirdly, that mission, the mission of God comes from the mercy of God. The mission of God comes from the mercy of God. So that's what I want to look at, those three points. And I want to kind of root them in or illustrate them out of the second chapter of Daniel. So if you've got a Bible or a device or something like that, then please just turn to Daniel. Uh, some of the verses that we're going to look at will come up. Uh, it's too long to read the whole thing this morning, so I'm going to read a bit uh, and then paraphrase and read a bit and paraphrase. But when you get a moment, do have a look at Daniel 2. Now, let's just remember some of the context then. The story of Daniel and his friends is an amazing one. Uh, the people of God have repeatedly been warned by God, look, unless you stop sinning and rebelling against me, I am going to send or I'm going to allow one of the nations around you to come against you, namely the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, and they will take you captive. They will conquer you and rule over you. And unfortunately, if you read your Old Testament, the people of God didn't listen, and they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And as was the Babylonian practice, when they conquered another nation, they took uh, some suitable young men and they brought them uh, into the palace of the king uh, because those young men who then understood the customs of the conquered nation could then be brought up and raised in the ways of the Babylonians uh, and indoctrinated, if you like, into the practices of the Babylonians with the aim that these young men would then one day govern what was the conquered nation, if you like, uh, because they had some understanding and affinity in history with that conquered nation, but they also understood and represented uh, the Babylonians. And really, that was the Babylonian practice. That was how the Babylonians, Babylonians wanted to Babylonianize the world. It's not very easy to say that. That's how the Babylonians wanted to Babylonianize everywhere they conquered. And that's how comes we find Daniel and his three friends uh, in Daniel 1, in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, being taught the language, the literature, the ways of the Babylonians. And they've been given Babylonian names. And chapter 1 gives us a great insight into something of the difficulty that Daniel has as someone who now finds himself um, determined to serve and love and follow God, but is actually living in and around and is actually the prisoner, virtually the property of a people who don't know God, who have many false gods, and who's led by an absolute kind of despot king in Nebuchadnezzar who does exactly what he likes on a whim. And so 
Actually, right through Daniel we see it, but it starts in chapter 1, this very real struggle that he has. Where do I draw the line? Where do I accept what the Babylonians are kind of forcing onto me, even the name change? And where do I draw the line and refuse and say no more? And if you remember, chapter 1 starts with this issue of eating royal food, which actually would have defiled Daniel in Daniel's understanding in the covenant that he was living under. And it's a story of how with humility and prayer and wisdom, God was able to show him a way through whereby he didn't have to eat that food, but he didn't lose his head. And the guy who was overseeing him didn't lose his head. That's chapter one of Daniel. It sets the scene really for the story. And then in chapter two, we see this another life-threatening moment comes about. Because if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he calls all the magicians and the astrologers and the enchanters and the sorcerers, the astrologers, he calls them together and he says to them, you tell me the dream and then interpret it. And they say, well, you tell us the dream and then we'll interpret it. And he says, no, 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 I'll know that your interpretation is right when you tell me the dream as well without me telling it to you first. And by the way, if you don't tell me the dream and interpret it, then I'm going to kill you. But if you do, I'm going to bless you. And there's a bit of back and forth, really, if you read it, and a bit of pleading. And then it gets to this in verse 10 and 11. The astrologers answered the king. There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. They do not live among humans. And even though I'm sure this seemed like a reasonable point to them, it just made him angry. And so he actually ordered that all the wise men, including them and including Daniel and his friends, should now be executed. You kind of get a flavor of Nebuchadnezzar here, don't you? What kind of guy he is. And when Daniel hears this, he asks the king for some time to interpret the dream. Then he gathers his friends and he says this to them in verse 18. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And that night, if you know the story, uh, God shows Daniel the dream that the king had and the meaning of it, which causes Daniel to praise God. It's worth a read. And Daniel then goes before Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who says, you know, can you tell me the dream? Can you interpret it? And Daniel says, no man can do that. But there is a God in heaven, and he is a revealer of mysteries, and he gave you the dream, and he can tell you what it means and what is going to happen in the days to come. And then Daniel carries on and tells the dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And he says, you saw in your dream a huge statue with four clear different parts, a head of gold and a chest of silver and a belly of bronze and feet of clay and iron. And then he says, in your dream, this happened, verse 24, uh, sorry, verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hand. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away, leaving without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. 
Then Daniel goes on to interpret the dream and explains these four successive empires will rise and ultimately fall, being crushed by this rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. And actually, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, this kingdom that is then going to be established by God will never be destroyed, never will be left to another people. And chapter 2 actually ends with Nebuchadnezzar lying prostrate before Daniel and saying this in verse 47. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then he puts Daniel and his friends in charge. Basically makes him like prime minister. I mean, it's quite a turnaround from, from the start of chapter 2, you know, to the end of chapter 2. I love the story of Daniel. I love how humble, faithful, prayerful, obedient he is. Even when his life is threatened, uh, he, re- re- he retains these qualities. I love the way that God does the impossible things that only God can do. And he does it in a way and a timing that you and I would think, nah. But that's how God does it. I also think that if you live in Western Europe in 2021 as we do, with a society that's moving more and more secular and away from God, I think it gives us some important principles for how we can live representing God in a society which largely wants nothing to do with him. I just want to focus this morning. There's lots of things I could say at this passage, but actually I want to contain myself to some things about global mission I think we see. Let me pray. Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to hear your voice this morning. Uh, I hope that the uh, points, Lord, uh, whatever you want to say, would land in our hearts, would land in our minds. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. You are not only the revealer of mysteries, but you are the teacher of all things. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would stir us and teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okie dokie, let me move on to these points. First one, God is on a mission to seek and save the lost. I mean, let's be honest. If ever there was kind of someone who didn't really deserve to be seeked and saved by God, it's Nebuchadnezzar. I know seeked is not a word, but I like it. Yet here's God giving Nebuchadnezzar dreams about what will come. And not just dreams about in the moment, but dreams about what will come, how history is going to be about kingdoms that are going to come, how they're going to be crushed, how God's going to, going to establish his kingdom. God's even brought Daniel right into Nebuchadnezzar's life as one who can faithfully and correctly interpret those dreams. I, I, when I was thinking about this, I thought this like mirrors Paul in the New Testament, who one day is overseeing the imprisonment and killing of the first disciples. And then he gets saved. It, it kind of struck me like that. And the message is not that God only saves people who are really bad. The message is God will move to seek and save lost people, and it doesn't matter how bad or what they've done. I think that's the message. Because the truth is this, right from the beginning, right from that moment when Adam and Eve rejected God, rebelled against him, God has been on a mission to win people back. He started, remember, with Abraham. He took one pagan man, nothing about him to commend him really to God. And he took him and said, okay, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make a nation out of your sons. And even though they continually rebelled, sinned against him, God had a plan. No, no, and from that nation, I am going to bring my son. 
And from my son, I'm going to save people right across the world. That was always the plan. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the incarnation. It's Jesus, fully God, yet fully man. Come in order that God's mission to seek and save the lost could be fulfilled. Born from the line, the lineage, descended from that one nation that came from that one man, Abraham. And so, if you like, can perfectly represent humankind, men and women like you and me, to God. And yet Jesus, fathered by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so can perfectly represent men and women like you and me to God. The rock that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, that one that was cut, but not by human hands, that is Jesus. That is Jesus. No one else fits that kind of description. A rock cut by a hand. But who is this? It's Jesus. Completely unique. If you like a human lineage through one side, but fathered by God, completely unique. What a description of him. Cut, but not by human hands. No, of course it was not by human hands. Because he's divine. He was fathered from God by the Holy Spirit. No one else fits that description. And the theologians agree that those four parts of the statues represent the four empires that, if you like, rose and fell between when this dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar and when Jesus came. So the first is the Babylonian Empire, the one of gold. And then it's the Medes and the Persians, the one that came afterwards, the silver one. Good, but not quite so good. Then it was the Greeks with Alexander. That was the next one, that belly one. And then the Romans are the feet of iron and clay, which was actually the one that Jesus was actually physically born into. The one who put him on a cross, thinking that it was going to be the end of him. Not moment, not realizing that at that very moment, their days were numbered. That actually at that very moment, the rock was hitting the statue. What Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream was going to happen because Jesus has now come, died on the cross, been raised again. And now guess what? God is going to raise up a people. He's going to raise up a mountain. He's going to fill the whole earth. And just if we were in any doubt as to why Jesus came, why would God send his son? Why has God done this? What is God all about. Jesus tells us, Luke 19.10, Jesus talking about himself says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost because God the Father is on a mission to seek and save the lost. To see every kingdom, every power, every principality that sets itself up against the knowledge of God crushed. To see his kingdom, his rule, his reign come one person after another person. Lost rebels uncaring without the knowledge of God are being actively seeked by God and saved by the, God, by the blood of Jesus. Lots of people, it seems to me today, are on a mission. When I was growing up, people, some people were on a mission to stop nuclear arms. I remember that. That was the big cause, as it were, Greenham Common protesters, ban the bomb, 
All that lot. No one seems to campaign about that anymore. Today, lots of people seem to be on a mission to save the planet. I just want to say to you, God is not on a mission to save the planet. But he is on a mission to save the people living on the planet. And the people who are living on the planet should be looking after the planet because it was given to us by God. (laughs) But he's not actually on a mission to save the planet. That should be our responsibility anyway. The mission of God is to seek and save the lost. And I think, therefore, we can, we can choose to be on lots of missions, but if we want to be on God's mission, if we want to be on the one that Jesus is on, then it's got to be about seeking and saving the lost locally and globally, all around the world. That is the mission that God is on. Second thing, then, I just want to say is that the church is the agent of God's mission. The church is often referred to as the agent of the kingdom, you know, the kingdom of God, God's hands, God's feet. But therefore, it's got to be true as well that we are the agent of God's mission. He's building his church as those who have both been seeked and saved by him, but also to be used by him in the seeking and saving of others. And in the scriptures, there are a number of descriptions of the church, and each is a bit different, and each helps us to get a picture of something a bit different. For example, the church is called a body, you know, hands, eyes, feet, and therefore we can get understand that we need one another. No one bit is more important. Elsewhere, the church is described as a flock of sheep, and that helps us to understand, man, we need a shepherd. We need to be looking to Jesus for provision, for protection. The different pictures of the church help us understand different things. But there is another picture of the church, which is of a bride. Every Christian who's ever lived, male and female, pictured together as a bride who one day will be married to her beloved, married to the one she's promised to, which is Jesus. So when we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, we read this. John says, I saw the holy city, Revelation 21-2, the new Jerusalem. He's really talking about all the believers gathered up together, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And in Revelation, we see the church, you and I, described as a beautiful bride made ready to be joined forever to her bridegroom, Jesus. And theologians call this the church triumphant. Don't you love that? The church triumphant. The church, genuinely, every saved believer, down through the ages, changed completely, resurrection bodies, perfect with Jesus, the glorious inheritance that he endured the cross in order to redeem. No wonder they call it the church triumphant. But listen, it's not our triumph. It's not like we were triumphant. It's the church triumphant because he has triumphed. (laughs) He has done it. It's not our triumph. It's his triumph. It's his victory. But you know as well that the theologians have another word for the church of, in terms of the bride, but it's before the kind of day of judgment, before that day when God kind of ends the world, judges thing, and 
And it's called the church militant. I don't like that as much. I'd rather have the church triumphant. But the church militant. But that's because in every time and every generation and every place where Christians live, while they live on earth, we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual war. And so we have wounds and, and maybe we look more like an army that's been dragged through the hedge backwards and been under attack and been in the foxholes. And we look more like that than we do a bride ready for her wedding day. And I remember a picture that a guy once had of, the, of this. And he gave the verses in Revelation. He said, I literally saw this bride begin to walk down a church. But as she passed me, I thought, whoa, what a mess. Oh, she's got hair all over the place and dirty this and ripped off you know, clothes. And oh, she looked ragged, ragged bride. And I do wonder whether sometimes that's how we maybe feel ourselves. Yeah, are we much? Is the church much? Is the church in the West much? You know, you look around, oh my goodness, Lord, the stats. I mean, if you're in China or parts of Asia, it's completely the other way around. They would be going, wow, look at the church. But now, in this moment of history, we may look at the church in Europe and say, hmm, not too much. But he said, you know what, as the church... As the bride walked down the church, he said, I could see she was being transformed. She was being changed. She was being made ready. And it didn't really matter kind of how ragged she looked as she was walking to the front. Because by the time she got there, she was transformed. She was radiant. She was ready. She was beautiful. And I suppose this picture just has a bit of a special place for me. Because a couple of weeks ago, I walked my eldest daughter, Paige, who some of you will know, down the aisle so that she could marry her new husband, and she looked beautiful. She looked radiant. She stood there. She was like the bride triumphant in that moment. Now, of course, it did take a you know, bit of getting ready and a bit of preparation and get the flowers ready and everything else. I mean, the makeup people came at half five in the morning to get the bridal party ready. So the church militant, what I'm saying is it may not look or feel much sometimes, but she will become the church triumphant one day because of the bridegroom. Jesus is and will change her completely. Because you see, that mountain that will come from the rock that crushed the statue will fill the whole earth. In other words, the church that will come from Jesus will reach every people group on earth as Jesus said it will. And then, one day, will become his perfect, spotless bride. It's really what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing in this picture. And so the church is the agent of God's mission, empowered by the Spirit to be his hands and his feet as God, on his mission, seeks and saves lost people from every language, tribe, and tongue from all around the world, down through every generation, not mattering how bad people may have been, God can rescue them. And all that is secure and solid and will happen. And guess what? It's not because you and I are wonderful. It's because Jesus has said, I am going to do this. And I am going to use my church to do it. We are the agent of God's mission. And God is surely on a mission. Let me just end with this third point, because this struck me from this passage, that the mission of God comes from the mercy of God. Did you notice in verse 18 that when Daniel finds out that they're in this terrible situation, 
he gathers his friends and he says this to them. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed. I must have read this chapter a hundred times. And when I read it, it was like I'd read it for the first time because I was thinking if I was Daniel, I would have saying, come on, guys, let's plead for justice. This is not fair. We shouldn't really be here. It was most of our forefathers who kept sinning and rebelling against God. Daniel and his friends are following God, but they find themselves captive. They find themselves having their names. God, this doesn't seem fair any, but here we are, God. Now we're going to have our heads lopped off because mad despot king. I would have been pleading to God, God, this isn't fair. Perhaps it's just me. God, this doesn't feel like justice. I don't think I signed up for this, God. But they don't. They plead for the mercy, for the kindness of God, the compassion of God, which is, which is really what his mercy is. When you plead for mercy, you, you understand, God, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to prove yourself, God. But because I believe that you're good and you're kind and you're merciful, God, won't you move, won't you speak, won't you make a way through? See, there will be a day of justice, a day of judgment, when things that are wrong will be fully and fairly dealt with. But God, out of his mercy, is not bringing that day about today because today is a day of mercy. Today is a day when more and more people may be saved. Today is a day when God is saying, no, no, I am on this mission to seek and save the lost, and therefore every day that I choose not to bring as a day, my, the day of judgment is actually a day of mercy. Do you understand? God is restraining himself from bringing an end so that the lost might be seeked and might be saved. And I do believe, therefore, that if we can understand that and accept that, then surely if these are days of mercy, then that should shape our mission. That should shape how we pray, how and why we reach out. And, and I say this because actually... Living in a nation, as it seems to be going further or further away from God, I find it can be very tempting to maybe try and go down the route of getting angry, getting frustrated, of wanting God to bring some judgment. God, why are we as a nation doing these things? Why are we, why are we changing laws that lined up with your laws to laws that don't line up with your... Oh God, nobody cares about you. It's a dangerous road to go down uh, for me. Dangerous road to go down. I think it's better to go down the mercy route where we understand that sin is the problem, not people. And Jesus is therefore the solution. Where actually, there is a kind and a compassionate God who is reaching out to people who don't know him. Even if they don't care about him, even if they dismiss him, even if they hate him and might hate us because of it. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill Daniel. He was prepared to kill him. Yet somehow Daniel still, God, no mercy, God. Come on, there must be a way through this. So I do believe that the mission of God, if we're going to be involved in his mission, it needs to come from understanding that God is a God of mercy, that God is a God of kindness and compassion, that God has been merciful to us, that we didn't deserve to be saved, that we weren't looking for God. We didn't care about God. We may not have killed anybody, but we were no angels. But God in his mercy, in his kindness, in his compassion, spoke into our lives. Made us understand, made us understand about Jesus. 
The revealer of mystery revealed the greatest mystery in the world to us, Jesus, out of his mercy. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. He did it because he loves us. So I think our mission, therefore, should be as much as being on our knees as being on a soapbox. But actually, surely when you think about it, if we do that, aren't we just following Jesus? He didn't need to come to earth. I mean, we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came to earth. Yeah, he didn't need to. No one could force him. No one could make him. He humbled himself and came. He didn't need to go to the cross. In terms of no one could force him to go to the cross. But he went to the cross because there was no other way that God's justice and God's, God's love and forgiveness could sit together. It was only on the cross. It was only when Jesus, the God-man, paid the price on the cross that God's justice, God's mercy could meet. I know I haven't given you any application points in terms of global mission. You know, I haven't said pray about this or pray about that or join this. But because when I was praying about this, I was actually stirred and I felt God wanted to encourage us that mission, whether it's local or global, reaching out must come from a right place of understanding in our head and understanding in our heart. And I, I felt that this morning God wants us to receive his mercy afresh. An understanding of his mercy afresh. That he loves us and he didn't need to. And actually he loves whoever we're reaching out to. And he, in that sense, didn't need to. It is his mercy. It is the kindness of God. It is the compassion of God. It is the love of God. It is the forgiveness of God which has come to us that he wants to see come to other people. And we must, in a way, fight and battle with the temptation to go down the road of hard-heartedness and God, you ought to, and God, they don't deserve it. We can't be doing anything like that. We, we, we must reach out with that heart of compassion. And I believe that heart of compassion starts with God revealing to us again his mercy to us. And somehow, therefore, that then, then if we get involved in mission, reaching out, whether it's local, global, next door, or across the other side of the world, we'll be in a safe place and a good place and a right place to do it. I'm going to hand over to Kevin now. Oh, you're not going to do it.